Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody. It's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This week's episode features Bart Kachanovich. We all know him by his social media handle, which is OMG Bart. He's a fantastic beauty blogger and skincare expert, and I hope you enjoy getting to know him. And if you missed last week's episode, it features Julie Wald. She's a founder and chief wellness advisor of Namaste New York. I hope you enjoy the shows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so pleased to be sitting across from Bart Kachanovich. Hello. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you so much. I am so excited. So I know you, and I we all talk about you here as OMG Bart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so much so that when I typed up my notes from our intake call, I didn't write Bart Kachanovich. I wrote <laughs> OMG Bart. It's easier, right? Well, it's just so sticky. Yeah, you know, I had a different blog before, and every event I went to, I saw my name on the list as OMG Bart because that was my Instagram handle. So I just changed the domain to omgbart.com. So Bart, um, would I say your title is influencer? It's a it's such a weird word, and I don't love it myself. Um, but I guess on a micro level, kind of, sort of, in a way, sure. Um, do you have a business card? I don't. I used to. And if you had a business card, what would your title say? Founder, omgbart.com. Oh, okay. I get it. I feel like it's safe and to the point. Okay, so um, for people who don't know omgbart.com, what is omgbart.com? It's a blog that I've been writing for over five years, and I focus on the latest in skincare, my favorite finds in skincare, and um, just skincare in general. And with like a heavy accent over luxury. So um, we met you through Cater Publicist, who's a right. friend of yours. Love her. And um, I, I adore your content. Thank you. You are so um, kind of opposite the um, trend of nonsense. And, I love it. Um, I feel like everything you're talking about is completely genuine and authentic. And if they are collaborations, I think um, what I feel is like you would never take a collaboration for something you didn't believe in. That's absolutely right. And, um, and not only that, but I feel like I... Also, when I start a dialogue with a brand or when I respond to a pitch, I will make it clear that I will need X amount of days with something. And that doesn't guarantee any kind of content either because I'm not out there to say something didn't work for me. I want to make sure that what I will tell you that I liked worked for me. So let's um, let's talk about how one becomes a skincare influencer. It didn't start like the way it starts now where people just like leave high school and decide they want to be an influencer. Lucky them. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what, in my notes with you, um, one of the first things you told me is um, all these young people make more money than me and they know less than me, right? I don't hold against them per se, but it is very transparent how little those who are like up there know and how quickly they change their you know, point of view or taste level or a personal even like mantra. Like, you know what I mean? I can be like one week, I'm all about retinol, then I'm all about vitamin C, but I will make sure that I will, you know, always use something that works for me, not jump from one to another and never really have like a relationship with a concept or a product. 
Right. It's clear from your content that you really love skincare mm-hmm. and that you love the things you love. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's super consistent. And I'm it- loyal to brands too. Like, I'm, I'm not loyal. I'm loyal to formulas and, and brands. Um, but I will also tell the brand that, you know, this new launch is definitely not for me. So I will pass on even if I can politely decline a PR mailer, I will happily do so. So um, let's let's go back in time. You're from Poland. I am. You were born and raised there? Born and raised, 17 when I came here. Is your family still there? Yeah, I go visit once, twice a year. Mm-hmm. Yep. And why did you come to the New York? So it didn't start with New York. I came to Southern California as an exchange student to high school first. And after a year, I went back. And I just couldn't find myself. It was also a lot of self-discovery. It was late 90s. So pre-social media, we're influenced by, I guess, TV, TV shows, um, movies, and I thought to myself, I kind of want to go back. But I came to New York. It was the cheapest plane ticket. What were the most influential TV shows or movies when you were in Poland? 90210. (laughs) I love 90210. Well, I really, really, really loved it. So when the idea of becoming an exchange student came about, I said to my parents, I will happily go. They emphasized the importance of learning a second language. So I said, yes, I'll go. But they had to pay extra for me to choose California. And I ended up in Riverside. It was not 90210. So um, it was all about Brenda Walsh for you? Yes. Oh, my God. Brenda Walsh for life. I um, I was also a very big fan. And um, we would have, like, viewing parties, you know? Like, that was, like, we were high school, I guess. I think we were the same. I was growing up, I was the same age as the characters. Or maybe they were, like, a year ahead of me. Mm-hmm. So um, if they were sophomores, I was a freshman. So I felt, like, so, like, really... Their stories were so relevant to me. Well, I liked how far ahead it was, too, for someone who grew up in Poland. Because even our high school experience is so different. And to me, they looked like such adults. And I was high school age. And I'm like, how do they look like they're 26 when they're in high school? But still, I mean, it was all about, you know, the talk and the concept of having sleepovers or or shopping. Yeah, like growing up in Poland was very... um, have you been to Eastern Europe? No. It's kind of gray and um, just very structured. Yeah, the concept of 921 was very, oh my God, like uncomprehensible for me. So when I came to California, I was like, oh my God, I have friends who drive to school. Right. <laughs> it was cool. In convertibles. Yes, plenty of those. So, um, you know, I think style was so important to the show, right? Mm-hmm. So I really, um, I at the time, I wasn't able to be, like, Jenny Garth's character, but I wanted to be. Like, I wanted to wear these, like, flower dresses that were a little peasant. And then, like, she had, like, um, like combat shorts. boots. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? Or, like, tall socks and combat boots. And um, I was really into that in my head. I wasn't living it. But but do you, when you see now what they dress like, don't you just, like, cringe? Not at that look. No. That okay. look, I, I feel like I actually really appreciate. Okay. But you know, Brenda's clothes, yeah, I'm not into yeah, like her look. All the flannels and the weird stuff, the hats. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Was, but it was, it's all around us still. Right. Though. And it was a thing. Um, okay. So you came back to New York as the cheapest ticket. And what, what were you going to do for work? So my first job was through an ad in the paper in Staten Island. And I was a home attendant. It was very under the table. I got paid cash. It was far from anything skincare-related. I took care of someone with MS. Um, and I worked 10 hours a day, six days a week, eight hours a day. And, yeah, that was the very first working experience I had. How did you get that job? 
through an ad in Staten Island Advance. I mean, what qualifications did you have? I had none. But the guy, it was so crazy. So the guy interviewed me, and then I went home, and then I got a phone call the next day because whomever was helping him at the time, um, I forget if that person quit or was called stealing something. They need me immediately. Mm -hmm. So when I came in, the guy said to me, oh, I thought you were Asian. I'm like, and I realized he couldn't see that well. (laughs) Yeah. So So he was elderly? No, but I think the MS was very much progressing Mm -hmm. pretty fast. And um, how long did you have that job for? I want to say two years. Oh, wow. That's a long time. And you spent that whole time with that one person? Yep. Wow. I then got into this um, side gig because I had a friend who was um, a secretary at this Polish attorney's office. So she would throw me scraps of gum because my English was pretty good. I always thought, you know, my accent is kind of sort of there, but you can't really pick up on the fact that it's Polish. So I would go to court with um, people who couldn't speak English, and I would in Polish explain to them, like, as an interpreter— what to do, who to talk to, how to get out of it or pay up. Wow. Both yeah. of these jobs are um, sort of a caregiving type mm. of role. Yeah, I never thought of that, but yeah. Right, if you're like someone who doesn't speak the language and you're going through the legal system and mm-hmm. to have somebody to rely on, for, like because it would be very scary for anyone who does speak English, right? right. Let alone someone who doesn't speak the language. Right. It's so a lot of caregiving. Actually, it's crazy to think because... We're recording this on 9-11, and I was actually in Brooklyn on 9-11 in the morning in court, and I couldn't understand why um, everything was called off, and that's when the towers were hit, Mm -hmm. and court was not in session. Couldn't get home (laughs) from Brooklyn. But yeah, so that was 18 years ago. Long time ago. I I didn't get into beauty until after college. Even my internship as a media major was in TV. Mm Mm-hmm. Did I tell you about this? I don't think so. So I was a media major, and I was convinced I wanted to be part of the behind the scenes in TV. So I interned with 2020 in primetime. And it was great. But it it was great because I realized I don't want to do it. So I became a temp in beauty. So how did you get that first temp job? I sent my resume everywhere. I sent it to L'Oreal, to Lauder, to any company that had a website with a mailing address, I sent a resume there. And I made sure I sent it a priority. Oh, so someone had to open it. Right. It was. No, I was not emailing my resume. It was going like fancy stock, really nice shade of cream. I don't think anyone's ever told me that they priority mailed their resumes. In, I did. This is in the 90s too? or No, early 2000s. Right, early 2000s. Mid-2000s. So who called you back? L'Oreal. Sorry, Lauder. Oh, my God. Lauder. Just one company called you back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I still think it was not because I mailed my resume. I think that a friend from that internship at 2020 had someone who worked at Lauder because she texted me and she was like, did anyone call you? I'm like, yes. And I just showed up and I said, I will do anything. And I was packing boxes. So this is um, another, I mean, everyone who sits in this chair talks about this. You have to work your network, mm-hmm. right? So Absolutely. she gave you the edge. Yeah. Uh-uh. And and another thing is that the beauty industry is so small. So those who you meet and cherish, you keep them close. So this first job, unpacking and packing boxes? Just packing. Just packing. I was sending, I will never forget that, I was sending training kits to the sales force of La Mer to Singapore. And they were like full-on um, toolboxes that I was filling with these full-size creme de la mer's and serums. And I was like, oh my God so much product. And then the pay was amazing, I really remember. And they would always send me home with product. 
So it was like really sweet. So is this your first time learning about skincare professionally? Yes. But I think the I was interested in skincare. I remember I got really into mail order um, with Yves Rocher, that brand. And it kind of got out of control. And I realized the formulas aren't as great. I'm like drowning in product that really isn't doing much for me. So I think that the gig at Lauder made me realize not just how much I like skincare, but how the business works as an industry. So it was fascinating because the perk of being a temp was that once one assignment was over and people liked me, they always kept me in mind for something else. So I was at the reception desk for Bobby Brown for like three weeks when the main guy went on vacation. And I was at Mac. Then I was at Joe Malone like wrapping folders. And I ended up getting a full-time gig with Joe Malone because of it. Oh, what was the job that was full-time? It was an assistant to the entire marketing team. Oh, it was a uh-huh. small four-person, four-people team. And I was the gatekeeper between the SVP and the other show. Wow, so you really moved all around Lauder Corp. Yes, but only downtown. I started in the GM building, um, but then I moved with Joe when the luxury brands moved to the building where the Prada store is, 575 mm-hmm. Broadway. So I stayed there. And this was after graduation, you got the full-time job? Yep. It was my first full-time gig in beauty. So tell me what a day in the life was like for you back then. They varied because um, I really had to cater to the entire department, whether it was scheduling calls or booking my boss's plane ticket on a trip abroad to making sure that when the retailers come to visit, everything looks top-notch. I mean, it was a luxury brand that's very much based on the sensory experience from visual to to fragrant to everything in between. So everything had to be just perfect. And luckily, Dean DeLuca was across the street. So every hard-to-get ingredient I could always get first thing in the morning. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> For like little product displays yeah. and stuff. But th- the days were exciting because I got to, I loved being around people in beauty. Um, and it was, you know, open space cubicles. So there was La Mer and Joe and I got to meet really incredible people who I still am friends with today. So when did this idea of being a content creator start? I think after I left beauty, I worked in jewelry. And I didn't love it, but I liked the inside of a PR angle. I worked at John Hardy Jewelry. Then I worked for a neighbor of mine downtown who had a custom jewelry brand, which no longer exists. So I got to put her product on these off-retail websites back then, like Rulala and Hotlook and whatnot. So I ended up socializing with the buyers and learning how everything else works. And that's when I think the social media platforms became a little more prominent. And when I left the job working for my neighbor, I had this gap time between getting my legal situation in order. I had to, because I was always either on a working visa or a green card. And I thought to myself, now that Doma fell through, I can marry the guy I've been with for years. And while everything is being aligned, I'm going to start something on my own. So I actually reached out to male beauty bloggers in the UK, and I said, hey, would you accept a guest guest post? I just wanted to see if I can write something for someone and have it out there. And both of them agreed, and I loved the fact that I wrote something that they posted. And I'm like, I'm just going to do it for myself. And went on YouTube and learned how to start a blog, watched nights worth of videos, and I started my blog. And the whole content part, I love to write, but I understand less and less people read. So I had to, you know think about visuals for Instagram and the shelfies and whatnot. So it kind of is a natural fluid part of my day now. And did you get married? Yeah. Yes, six years ago. Oh, congratulations. I just lost my wedding band (gasps) on the plane going to Italy. 
two weeks ago. And the good news is that today the airline emailed me that someone turned it in. Oh, my gosh. How crazy is that? That's beautiful. Yeah. What a nice commentary on how wonderful people can be. Yeah, and I think that having lived in New York in the past, I was actually sort of kind of expecting it because I'm the person who always returns the cell phone I find in a cab or a wallet in the restaurant. So, yeah, karma is real. That's really cool. Okay, so let's talk about a deep dive into what it takes to be a content creator Mm -hmm. who is authentic and focused and um, patient because that's what I see in you. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, What is a day like for you? There is no set schedule unless I have a bunch of deadlines that I have to focus on because those are prioritized. And and that leaves my Instagram personal take on visuals kind of on the side. But I probably get inspired by either something I try and I really like or whether it's gorgeous daylight and I'm thinking of, oh, I've been using this mask and I haven't taken a good picture yet. Now the opportunity presents itself. Um so there really isn't a set schedule I have, but I do my best writing in the morning, preferably before the sun rises. I wake up super early, like 5, 5.30, and I am most productive by 10. So I'll get my writing done, whether it's an outline, whether it's a roundup, whether it's banging out emails, reaching out, looking for it's a quote or an high-res image. And then in the afternoon, I kind of focus more on opening the packages that arrived because I am lucky to receive a lot of product in the mail. And then I will either post some stories or take a picture that I just put on my grid. So um, for content creation, when it comes to writing, are you, um, you're your own editorial director, but is most of the content driven by what you've been hired to write? Or is it that you create a story idea in your mind and you work on it for yourself, whether there's a paid partner or not? So I'm not the best when it comes to creating stories on my own. I am actually really bad when it comes to pitching stories. Um, But I am great with doing roundups and gift guides and something that I can curate. I really like curating. Give me 10 best gifts to get, you know, that are vegan. I will find you like the chicest vegan gifts you can find. But when it comes to writing, I will do, when I have time, something for myself that I enjoy and I want to share with people on my blog. Or when it comes to writing for someone else, I will probably bounce ideas around and give someone three scenarios of what I think would work for, whether it's a blog post or um, a series of stories or images. So are you creating content that, um, other than OMG Bird, are you creating for brands like Work for Hire? Mm-hmm. So you're you're both a freelance Correct. writer. And so I have my own platforms, and I will also deliver content to a brand if they wish so. It is most often than not, though, my platform, their product, and that's how I get paid. Mm-hmm. And um, do people pay on time? Never. Actually, wrong. Some people pay not only on time, but like way before time, but there are some people that when you freelance, you have to set aside this few hours, these few hours a week to literally chase invoices. And it's upsetting. Like, it's really upsetting. I don't understand how people sleep at night when they will have a net 90 in their agreement and they will add 60 extra days because I don't know why. But, you know, I have a car payment that I can't be 60 days late on. <laughs> right. And do you find that it's the larger companies who are less um, timely with their payments? Or is it kind of anybody? No, it's always the large ones. Mm-hmm. It's always the 
small ones that just got into Sephora or are trying to do something, they will like PayPal the money the day of when I send the invoice or wire the money within a week. But it's the big ones that, oh my God. I I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but there were a few this year that I decided to, going forward, charge up front. Yeah, I would recommend it. There's clients of ours that are very big corporations where their payment terms are like really insane and awful. And the only way that we'll work with them is if they pay for the work um, up front. Well, especially there's one brand that expects content for approval. They they will assign something in like two weeks. I'm like, I like to work 30 days out, but two weeks when I like the brand, I will, of course, find the time if I can. But if you have me do like slight revisions and then you take four months to pay, no, that's not right. Yeah, I think it's important, I mean, for independent people like you and right. other companies like mine to really stand up for yourselves. And um, what's the point of doing the work if you don't get paid for it? So, uh, I've learned during this five plus years that it's important to speak up and ask questions and make sure that your impression of this collaboration is also very much known because people think they also have a really skewed concept of the word collaboration because it seems like we're going to collaborate, but you're going to get everything you need and I'll get a pleasure of working with you. Mm-hmm. That, you know. So let's talk on that topic. I um, I don't remember which influencer was that said this. I'm sure they all say it now. But um, exposure doesn't pay the bills. It does not. Right? So do you still get hit up with this? Every single day. Yep. And it's actually brands that it would surprise you who thinks it's such a great deal to get exposure. It's like, to your point, someone said um, having all these followers, like having all this monopoly money. It's not real. Right. It's like the whole illusion. Right. So let's talk about that, actually, this idea of not real. So um, fake followers, mm-hmm. um, fake likes, fake comments, fake mm-hmm. all of it. Um, there's this, like, mad panic that's been happening for a few years now of marketers just, like, feeling like, you know, they need to see these numbers increase. So to increase them, they're going to buy fakes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what's the point? <laughs> like, it doesn't well, make any sense. I. I want to agree with you, and I do, but apparently it works for a lot of people, which is kind of mind-blowing. Right, because nobody is asking questions, back to your previous comment. Um, But I think that, and my whole team believes this too, that the customer is super savvy and the younger customer sees through it, right? Like if you have 500,000 fans and you have like 34 likes and one comment on a post, like they know that these you know, your fan base. I see people with hundreds of thousands of followers and then they have the same three friends comment under each picture three times. I mean, if there's if this is a new way of beating an algorithm, quote unquote, then I think they literally just invented it. Right. So how do you stay focused on the fact that you have your audience, but it's not 500,000 fans? I think that you have to embrace what's there and interact with people. I love interacting with people, whether it's via DM or whether it's via commenting or I became really good friends with people who are either brand founders or fellow bloggers, influencers, or even editors. And I don't get caught up with seeing the numbers. Honestly, I was just in Italy and I saw my best friend who showed me her Instagram. And now in Italy, they no longer see how many likes someone else got. It just says, so-and-so and and others Mm -hmm. like this picture. So you only see how many people liked your own picture, but not others. And I'm like, you know, that's not a bad idea. Right. Other platforms do that too. Mm-hmm. So there's not this sort of competitive nature. Yeah. I mean, I don't get caught up in numbers. It's nice when a brand that you like or enjoy 
gets to interact with you or repost your content. But it also is a double-edged sword because there are people who will repost and not credit you, or there are people who will just take your image and be like, oh, we thought it was a stock photo. I'm like, really? No, you didn't. I had a brand who threatened me with cease and desist, and I'm like, because I used the phrase that apparently you trademarked. I'm like, come on. Like, if you have the time to do it, then you have to have the budget for proper collaborations. Right. So um, let's talk about reposting. Mm-hmm. So we, um, as an agency, are just adopting now across the board for all clients, big and small, that we're not um, reposting without permission. Mm-hmm. So this is guided by our legal teams who, you know, have been around and investigating a lot of um, the, what you just spoke about, right? Brands or content creators going after brands and vice versa. Um so do you have a lot of brands asking permission to repost your work? Now I do. I and I actually got smart because I thought it was incredibly disrespectful. A brand I have been a fan of for years never asked for a permission of using my picture. And we worked, we collaborated on projects where I got pay, when I got paid. But I saw my image in their newsletter, and it was the only image they used. And... At first, I was, like, really mad, and then I was upset, and the third thing I did was just invoice them. Oh, really? And I said, this is what I charge for a photo, and they paid. Wow, good for you. They took me off their media list, but you know what? It's okay. (sighs) Interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, would it behoove you and content creators like you to actually, like, have a terms of use or something somewhere on your website, like... um, this is what you expect or this is what, you know, your attorneys have guided you to expect um, so that you can actually, like, point people to the right um, information? I probably should have a section on my website that would explain this because I don't even have a rate card. I feel like everyone wants to receive something that's so custom that having a firm rate card would only hurt me. So I'm all about making sure that you get exactly what you want and I will be compensated accordingly. Um, but when it comes to terms of use, yeah, I should. I mean, to me, it's common knowledge. Like you're using someone else's. I mean, yeah, I think it's not product. as common as um, there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of um, lawyers and <laughs> there's um, you know also a lot of young people just doing the job that they're right. told to do. So um, I would recommend that you actually consult with your attorney and say if you're gonna repost my image, this is what I expect, that you ask for permission. If you're going to, you know, take my picture from... a very good idea. ...and put it in a newsletter, then I'm going to, you know, expect payment. You know, and you don't have to include your rate sheet. I agree with you that doing custom programs is probably smarter for you. But, um, you know, being able to then DM these people who are going out of line, be like, you know, can visit my website for this, and now I'll invoice you. I think that's, like, super smart. I love it. I'm going to do it. Thank you. Yeah. And any other content creator should think about doing it too. Yeah. Um, definitely consult with an attorney. I'm not a lawyer, which is what I say to all my clients. I'm not a lawyer. Um, but uh, if we don't put forth what we want, if we don't ask for what we want or what we expect, then no one's going to follow it's true. It. No, you have an excellent point. I just did not expect it. Like, I really never saw this coming. To me, thinking if one brand can threaten a cease and desist because I use the trademark phrase in the blog post title, not even about that brand— um, then if you are someone in the graphic design department or art department of a brand and you're making this and then marketing sees it for approval, they know they never took that picture. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just there's a sense that 
um, social is just sort of there to be consumed, Mm -hmm. to be shared, right? So if I'm Jody, Mm -hmm. I don't actually have my own personal feeds, but let's say I did, I could repost your picture and be like, hey, I thought this was really interesting and you'd be happy. Right. Because I'm just a regular lady talking about skincare. You are not regular. <laughs> but if I'm You're a brand... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if I'm a brand, it's a different story, right? 100%. But I think it really still gets mixed up in people's heads because, you know, these tools were not created to build brands. They are created to build communities and, and you know, extend friendship, right? I think initially, but now it's truly a source of income. Yes. Especially yes. for brands. Like, this is the extension of their marketing or PR. Right. But we're, as brands, co-opting these tools for advertising purposes. So it's, like, so still so much gray area. Mm-hmm. So I'm not super surprised that a brand that you talk about a lot threw you a picture of you into their newsletter. I can imagine that they were like, oh, this is so exciting. Bart loves us. Um, but you have every right to expect. But I see a lot of brands do it, but they will always give me credit. And I really don't mind this. Mm-hmm. Like, at least my name is out there as someone who's a fan and who genuinely enjoys the product and takes a decent picture that's worthy of the reuse. But if you're going to, like, not acknowledge the fact it's not your picture and blast it to your hundreds of thousands of email subscribers, then there's something off about it, yeah. in my opinion. We have to take um, really um, significant steps now in even posting about um, press mentions, mm. being super careful legally around um, how we use the publication's name, right? So there's like so many things that we're um, evolving our protocols around to protect our, ourselves and our clients around this. And like oh. you as a content creator have to do the same. I, I have to. Yeah, because um, no one's going to do it for you. No, you're right. It's just me. So we've been talking a lot about the brands. Let's talk about the fans, right? Because that's really, you know, your community is really what it's all about. Yep. Um, do you remember, like, the first time somebody DM'd you a question and you realized, like, oh, my God, people really care? <laughs> yeah, it still happens. It never really wears off because people have really good questions. You know, I am not licensed. I am not certified. I cannot analyze your skin and give you a recommendation. But God knows I've tried hundreds of products. And I know that what worked for me and what will probably work for most people. I do love when people ask questions. I I always feel weird when they ask me for a moisturizer for dry skin when they're 20 because I've always been oily and I'm almost 40. So I can't tell them, but I will tell them which brand I think would be a good starting point. I do like it. There was one moment when I was in the UK and I walked into a space in K in Oxford and this guy who is now a friend on Instagram was like, oh, you're Ramji Bart. <gasps> Yeah, it was the sweetest, like, it was the ultimate moment. It was actually really special. Yeah. How long ago was that? Two years. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. Does he know how cool that moment was for you? I hope so. I'm pretty sure I told him. Yeah. It was was really cool. Yeah. So, um, are there ever questions that you're like... I, I don't have an answer for you or people or do people stick to like, you know, what your specialty is? No, people ask questions about product or procedures or something mm-hmm. that I have absolutely no idea um, how they would work. But it also works both ways because sometimes people will message me and tell me what worked for them. And I really like that. Or I got um, a patch test for this new filler and I decided I don't want to do this. And I think what made me decide I didn't want to do this, and I've never had filler in my life, but so many people messaged me saying that don't do this, this stays in your body forever, blah, blah, blah. And I felt smarter because of my followers. So um, what is it like to watch your followers grow and evolve, not just 
as numbers, as metrics, but um, that you're educating them along the way. I think it's pretty fulfilling. I think it's it's a really nice feeling knowing that people come back and say, or will post, like, I bought this because OMG Bard said, like, I will probably like it, and he was right. Um, so it's a kind of full circle moment. Like, it goes a lot of, t- a lot of the time from recommendation to a really nice thank you message. And what do you know about your fans? Like, have you done any research into who they are, where they I live? I see the stats on my Instagram. I know it's 85% women, 15% mm-hmm. men. I know that most of them are the early 20s to mid-30s. Um, and they're from New York, L.A., and London, mostly. So they're pretty urban. Um, have you surveyed them at all? No. No, but I asked yesterday because I'm working on a blog post after someone asked me about a basic routine for a guy in his 30s, and I asked a question. So I surveyed them how much they would be willing to pay for a cleanser, a moisturizer, or whatnot, and I got... A ton of responses. How much would they be willing to pay for a cleanser out of curiosity? Under 20. A lot of people between 20 and 30, but I think under 20 was a sweet spot. Um, I wouldn't spend more than $20 for a cleanser. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I probably would. (laughs) Uh, Why? Tell me why. I think that I like a lot of cleansers that are more than $20. Wait, actually, I should say this. I should actually like Google because there is a cleanser that I might actually be spending Which way one? more. Pharmacetics. Oh, yeah. The one in the lavender bottle? It's a, or the, the glass bottle. bottle. Yeah, the glass bottle. Oh, they're from like Rhode Island, right? Yes. Oh, wait. I'm going to look it up if I can remember. I'm sure it's over 20. Okay, so then I do. <laughs> then I'm wrong. I use their um, rose powder that you mix with a cleanser or you can use it as an exfoliant solo. It was so nice. It's incredible. So, I mean, I don't actually usually pitch products on this show, but... Um, they were a client many years ago and I started using their products and when my skin is whack, like crazy whack you. have beautiful thank skin. You. Is it pharmacetics? Well, I use a lot of pharmacetics. I mm. use a lot of other products too. But um, I am a skincare girl much more than I am like a cosmetic or a hair girl. But um, the, um, the pharmacetics products like this mask, like what you spoke about, like take me from looking whack to like having like the most beautiful glowing skin. Like red skin. carpet, right? Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Okay, so now I'm going to just <laughs> want to see how much my my um Is it like geranium is. or lavender? Which cleanser was okay, it? Okay, I'm going to tell you right now. It is the Fine Herbal Cleanser. Oh, it's $40. <laughs> so it's <laughs> and I do pay for it. What do you think you wouldn't pay? I do get a lot of products for free, but this one I pay for. And I do love it. Okay, so I, I lie. I would spend money for a cleanser. Why is that? Why would I spend a lot of money for a cleanser? I don't know. I think that, okay, so I have seen the voices and beauty switch from, oh, my God, it's going down the drain. Why would I pay for something that's on my face for a second? And now we're all obsessed about the acid mantle, about protecting the, you know, the, the layer on top of our skin. So people are investing in cleansers that won't strip the protective oils will keep the pH leveled. So people are willing to pay for, I think, whatever buzz of the moment is. Right. Okay. So let's, you, you keep seg- segueing beautifully for me. I know. Sorry. No, it's perfect. Oh, good. Um, you're doing my job for me. So I'm Yay. grateful. Um, trends and all this Michigas, like, I sometimes feel like I want to just like vomit. There's like so much like this, it's now it's this, and now it's this, and that's the next thing. Like, it's really annoying and overwhelming. And I do think our the customer is overwhelmed. Yeah, but I think the customer is to blame because it's happening because of the customer now. Tell me. 
I think we talked about this when we had our phone call, and I was telling you how my passion for skincare like stems from those days 15 years ago when there were like two new L'Occitane or Kiehl's products launching a year, and I really looked forward to them. Mm-hmm. And the second that postcard got in the mail, because no one was doing e- newsletters via email, I was in that store, like, getting that jar, coming home with it, and, like, really enjoying it. Well, I want to press pause on this because I used to work at L'Occitane. So I was the creative director there. So that mailer that came in the mailbox, I probably was creating. Oh my God, they were beautiful. (laughs) And they got me to that Spring Street store, like, the day it got in the mailbox. Mm -hmm. Well done. So you were a super fan, just like, you know, teenagers with sneakers or video games, right? You waited for that launch. Right, but newness was really new. And now newness is redundant in a way because brands are launching so much every month almost. And I also harbor quite a bit of resentment that a lot of my favorites get discontinued. But I understand that, you know, test three units can only accommodate so many products and they need to make room for the new ingredient or, you know have something that other brand did that resembles whatever hit of the month. So you said the customer's to blame, but it sounds like really it's the the brand's to blame at this point, right? The customer wants something new, but does, does she or he wants something new every other minute? Well, that I don't know, but people sure buy a lot of stuff all the time, right? Right. Okay, so this goes back to um, my thinking around the, the mailers that go out to influencers and media. Yeah. Um, so... We, we make a lot of them. Our clients hire us to make them, some more elaborate than others. A lot of money is spent and a lot of product goes into making them and a lot of time. So um, my philosophy on this is like, it's ridiculous. But until the influencers and editors stop putting them on their stories, the brand's going to want to invest in them. I know, but I'm sitting on, I think, four mini fridges right now. Um, and I haven't plugged in one yet because I have enough on my shelves. I can't imagine having a skincare fridge in the bathroom. It looks cute when you open the box, but then you have to, like, throw the box out and figure out what you're going to do with that fridge. Right. So as someone who receives a lot of these mailers, like, what's your point of view on it? Would you rather just have product in a bag with a note? Yes, 100%. So, like, across the board, even if La Mer has, like, the sickest box, you'd rather have the product in a shopping bag? 100%. And tell what me why. I think I would appreciate... Um, of brands is if they had the ability to send product pre-launch so your enthusiasm can be really genuine when the product launches. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of brands now time deliveries of mailers with the launch day. And I feel like my excitement is just there, but it's not at its best because, okay, so I got it and I'm grateful and thank you so much, but I can't tell you anything about it. So. Oh, so you're saying you would like the time to actually, like, experience the product, mm-hmm. get to know it, spend a yes, month with it. Uh, quite a few brands still do it. I mean, there's always an embargo that you shouldn't mention, you can't mention. But it's nice to have something before it launches. When you get something that it launched and it's a big, um, anything from pool floaties to champagne bottles. It's right, just, because then it gives you a chance to be a true advocate of it right. at the time that it's launching. And but, I understand I cannot be an advocate for everything, but it would be nice to have an experience that is more than a single application. Right. Okay, so um, on the other side of that desk, right, so you're receiving it when you receive it and you mm-hmm. wish you received it earlier. Um, I know our clients are saying, let's send it, and you know, we say it as well, let's send it timed with when the customer can buy it, right? Because we know that 
the recipients are going to put on stories. So I think that what you're asking for is actually like the the approach we used to take with media, right? Like send right. a three months in advance. They know it's embargoed. Access, right. Yes. Um, and that that would make a difference for you because then, it would. Mm-hmm, then you get to really experience it and then tell your story when they're looking for the most momentum, which is when it's launched. Exactly. Okay. And that's, is that true for paid programs and um, just product that's seeded to you? Anything. Mm-hmm. Everything, really. And then again, it works the other way because I went to this wonderful fragrance launch event and we got a fragrance six months before it launched. And by the time it launched, I forgot I had it. And Right. Six months is too long. I moved on, yeah. Right. So is a month sort of the sweet spot? Yeah, I think that would be ideal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even if it's two weeks, it's always something that gives you this edge. Yeah, I think it's really smart. As an enthusiast of products, skincare in general, or some and someone who likes to share. Right. So um, the lesson to everyone who's listening is that Bart would like to not receive the tchotchkes, no tchotchkes, um, and no elaborate boxes made out of beautifully wrapped cardboard with graphics printed on them, and you just would like the products in a shopping bag. Or even just in a box, yeah. Right. It sounds great. <laughs> And send it um, a month in advance before launch. Two weeks is good. Two weeks to a month. Please. And thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like those big... I mean, you create them. So I'm not saying you are to blame because, like, the mailers are amazing. But you have to agree that some are really over the top. Yes, and we've created many over the top ones. Mm. We we started working on this type of work um, years ago. I mean, it might be 10 years, even longer at this point, for Clinique. So this was... um, right after the recession, mm-hmm. and the very smart women who were my client team at Clinique um, decided that it would be in poor taste to send, like, fancy, expensive shoes to editors, which is what they used to do. Like, here's beautiful shoes and our product, right? It's like, thank you for your loyalty to Clinique, and here's the product and beautiful shoes, expensive shoes. or Gosh, bad. I remember those days. <laughs> so they thought that would be in poor taste, that so they wanted to do something that would be intriguing and conceptual. And um, we had never done this work before because, like, nobody was doing this work before. And it was right at the moment where we had bloggers and um, bloggers had a a real value Mm -hmm. in the storytelling. And we started doing this work. And the first project we did with them, I remember I was pregnant with my daughter, who's now um, just about nine. Um, And it was for one of the rosacea collections. And we actually created, it was magnificent, um, a white acrylic box that arrived on editor's desk glowing red. Wow. When you lifted the lid, the red light inside went off and the box was white. So it was like, you know, doing what the product would do for your rosacea. Soothing, instantly right? canceling redness. Yeah. Wow. So um, it was really like a work of art. is a really interesting piece of technology. We had LED lights that were, um, there was a trigger to turn them off. And we had to, of course, call like all the publishing houses, messenger centers, and say we're sending bags, shopping bags with growing, glowing red lights inside and like, it's fine, you know, like get permission to send them, right? Because this is like unusual. Um, and it was the first time we've ever done something like this. And it really started a trend in, um, you know, how you tell conceptual stories about product through That's packaging. Amazing. Yeah, so we've been really proud of many of the creations. I'd say like the best ones we did were with that Clinique team way back when. Were you in-house at Clinique? No, it was my agency. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, um, you know, since then, I think it's just been... Um, a race to do more, do more faster, get more out. Um, certainly there's other projects along the way we've been proud of, but I don't love the idea of the focus on so much on these individuals because I, I think that the clients sometimes forget about the customer. 
Like, let's really focus our attention with these types of projects to your best customer, right? Your top 1% customers. Right. And shower them with um, these really special moments um, because they are advocates for your brand too. Maybe 100%. they don't have, you know, a YouTube, mm-hmm. but they have their mouths and they tell their friends and they bring their t- friends to the counter or the store or, you know, tell them where to shop. So, um, you know, it's hard for brands. A lot of them are third-party retail, so they don't actually know who those customers are. Right. Right. So the Luxitons of the world do know, right? They own their own stores. Yep. But um, if you're a third-party retail, it's impossible for you to know who these people are. So I always want to just get closer and closer to the customer, the end user, and shower her with love. Um, but it's hard. I remember Luxitan always did like amazing GWPs. Mm-hmm. Like the more you spend, like, <laughs> I mean, it, we were like this close to getting a free bike in that store. <laughs> I think they still do it because I do buy, um, you know, the, the things that I do shop for, the pharmaceutics, mm-hmm. face wash, and the um, the Shea Butter Hair and Cream at Luxitan. That's yeah. like an iconic product. Yeah, and it's my favorite. 20% Shea Butter. So um, I'm really grateful you shared all your wisdom with us today and your oh, story. Thank it's you. So nice to thank get you, to you know for you. having me. Oh, I, I, I was adore like, you. I was so scared I would be awkward because I tend to get awkward, but. And this is your first podcast ever? Ever. You did a beautiful job. Thank you. Oh, I really appreciate it. And you can like, Tell your friends and family. I could just listen to you for hours. Like, I knew this after our phone call. I'm like, this is so great. Well, I'm genuinely interested in you. You know, I think that's the difference. Well, it's a two-way street. Oh, thank you. I'm interested in you. And you brought us beautiful donuts today. I did from a local farm slash bakery in Litchfield, Connecticut. Thank you for bringing them on the train for us. You drove? drove, Yeah. I'm a train girl. I love the train, but today, of all days, I didn't want to be in Grand Central. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like so hot. I'd want them to melt. Thank you. You're welcome. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Bart. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.